0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Father, as we gather, some of us hurried into this place, or we brought stuff with us. It might be emotional. It might be physical. Lord, there's spiritual battles that are taking place, but uh, Lord, we're winded because we are living this life, and Lord, some attempting as best we can to do it without you, and so we know that you want to meet us. You have a word for us today, and so, Lord, I I simply pray that uh, you would be exalted in this place, that you would teach us through the presence of your spirit. That's what you promised to do. You promised to send the the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter who will come alongside and teach us. And so, Lord, as we examine your word, I pray that it's not just a historical lesson, but God, that you meet us personally, that we remember who you are, and we honor you and praise you. It's in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you. Look, next someone will bring tennis shoes. Anybody got some tennis shoes in the place? (laughs) Um, a fit bit, anything uh, so judges we 're going to continue looking at the life of Gideon. Uh, Pastor Scott began to unpack gideon 's story a little bit last week and and uh I told him this week, I said, you kind of promised I would say some things that I was not planning to say. So uh, we've modified a little bit. He said, I would talk about the fleece. We'll mention the fleece, but we're really not getting there. That's somewhat of a familiar story. If you've been around church at all, there are certain stories that are very familiar to us in the Bible and a couple of them with Gideon, the story of the fleece and the story of the army. Those are somewhat familiar, but there's three chapters, 100 verses given to the life of Gideon. Uh, Gideon is actually not referred to as a judge or a deliverer anywhere in this book. Uh, It said that he saved Israel and he did. He did some incredible things. So last week we were introduced to him and and, uh, as we begin to look at his life, uh, I want to look at some parallels that I see in Gideon's life and my life. And I hope and pray that somewhere in the midst of that, that you're going to go, wow, that's my life as well. That there's something there. There's a disconnect. Or, uh, what, because what I see that as God called Gideon, he called him to a greater purpose in his life. When God put a call on my life, he called me to a greater purpose. And, and that purpose was not about being a pastor by position. It was being part of the mission of Jesus Christ. He invited me to his mission, whatever I do. I worked in retail for a number of years and, you know, whatever you are doing, God has called you to do that with a greater purpose. He pursued us. He invites us. He pursued Gideon. He found him hiding uh, in the caves. He pursued him. He, He then invited him to the mission. But when we look at Gideon's life and all the things that he, yes, he did accomplish, there were some things that he failed to do. And one of the things he failed to do was to finish well. He failed to finish well. He failed to bring honor and glory to God to those around him and begin to lead them into a deeper relationship with God. Chapter six and chapter seven are full of caution, of reverent fear, of communication with God. But what Gideon didn't realize in that moment, and I think what many of us don't realize, is the the impact of our blast zone. Every one of us in this room, or if you're attending online, you have a blast zone. You know what a blast zone is? Uh, If you've ever watched guys like blow up buildings or implode buildings or around construction zones, and sometimes you go into a construction area, and and there's a sign or a fence around it and says, this is a hard hat area, because they know stuff's going on in here, and it could get a little dangerous. But we all have a blast zone that, that... as we go and as we live life, we impact those around us. Stuff's going to happen when we're around. Now, listen, your blast zone could be good or bad. Your, your blast zone could bring honor and glory to Christ, and you could have incredible impact on everyone that you interact with. Or, to the other hand, you could not have an impact for the cause of Christ. It, it could be about you. It could be about your, your pursuits, So when we look at this, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 12 as Jesus was speaking. You can see it on the screen. Jesus said, "Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Uh, There's a very intentional, you are either gathering people to the kingdom with Jesus or simply by nature of being inactive, you are scattering people. There's a lot of people who love Jesus, but they're not actively involved in gathering people. And so the effect of your blast zone is negative on the cause of Christ. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though what? God were making his appeal through you. Wherever you step, wherever you put your feet is a mission field. You have a blast zone. You have an impact for the cause of Christ. Are you gathering? Are you an ambassador for Christ? Is he making his appeal through you? That's not to say you're not busy. That's not to say you're not doing good things. But are you having a lasting impact for Christ? Six, seven of, of judges uh, are, are very cautious, very reverent. A lot of communication with God. But then something happens. There's a spiral that begins to take place in chapter 8. We begin to see a progression of self-reliance and trust in, in his own abilities or his own victories. I've titled this morning's message Gideon's Swagger because a swagger is a confident, arrogant walk. And I begin to see that in the life of Gideon. Somehow things became about him. So I want to look at the end of Judges chapter 8. If you have a Bible, just look with me. Judges chapter 8. Let's look at verse 33. He says, As soon as Gideon died, as soon, not Three months later, six months later, after a period of time, a year later, ten years later, after a generation, it says, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereath their God. Verse 34, and the people, underline this, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. What was Gideon's ultimate responsibility in these battles and in these victories? It was to help the people return to right relationship with God, to to remember the God of their victories. He said they didn't remember, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord or God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, which says if they didn't remember that it was God that did it, somehow they think it was Gideon that did it. Now that Gideon's gone, we're going back to our good old ways. What happened? Uh, Where did he lose his impact? Well, if we move up just a few more verses, chapter 8, look at verse 27. And Gideon said to them, now, this is post-victory. This is after he conquered the Midians. And this is actually after he conquered the kings because he pursued the kings. Chapter 8 is all him pursuing the two kings of Midian. We'll look at that in a moment. But after he did all that, he pursued them. He had all this victory, all this stuff. And Gideon said to them, that was his army, let me make a request of every one of you. Give me... Two critical words, give me. What he's not saying here is, man, let's rejoice in the Lord, for he is good. Now, why don't you give me the earrings from his spoil? For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Verse 25, and they answered, we will willingly give them. And and they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, roughly 70 to 75 pounds. Besides the crescent ornaments, underline that because that becomes critical. We're going we're to press into that a little bit. The crescent ornaments, part of the crescent ornaments were part of the, the worship of the idols of Baal. That was part of the symbolic um, worship to the gods of Baal. And he took them. He said, Hey, why don't you give those things to me? Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod. It closes out, and all Israel whored after it. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. What happened? Uh, what happened to Gideon? Well, what happened to that sweet little innocent Gideon that we met in, in chapter 6, who was, who was afraid and hiding up in the caves, and he's pressing out weed in the wine press because they were so oppressed? Who had that fellowship and that interaction with God? Well, uh, I like to think that... that Gideon was a turtle on a post. You ever seen a turtle on a post? Anybody? Here's one. You ever seen one of these? Seriously, seriously, let me see a hand. Anybody? I grew up in the Chicago area. We didn't have a lot of this. I moved to Texas. I saw a lot of this. <laughs> we pastored in, the, in the, some country areas and served in some areas. But, you know, I'm driving along and here's a little country fence and there's a fence post and on top of the post there sits this turtle. And you kind of stop and go, How'd that get there? I mean, anybody stop and look at this and go, how'd that dude get up there? I, I love Chuck Swindoll. I love his preaching. I love his teaching. Uh, he did a book once called Taken, uh, or yeah, Taken, took this article. I, I remember him talking about this in, in a devotional he did called Day by Day with Chuck Swindoll. And in that book, he tells a story of being down in South Texas, a little town of El Campo, where he was born and he was he was looking at this old one room garage apartment that he was born in and he he just said kind of blurted out loud he goes i feel like a turtle on a post to which his young daughter was it's like what do you mean and and he began to explain the significance of where i am now in my life as a pastor as an author that God has raised me up and he's put me in a place that I never imagined I would be. And this is what he says in, in that book. I love what he says. He says, in contrast from his life in the 1930s to life today, he says, I blurted out, I feel like a turtle on a fence post. Which startled his daughter and he said, she asked for an explanation. He says this, he said, I first heard this imagery used by a man named Dr. Robert Lamont. A Presbyterian pastor who felt incredibly blessed by God. Anybody? Anybody just feel blessed by God? Come on, let me see a hand. Don't be afraid. I, feel, I mean, I am blessed by God. Jesus is good. God is great. Okay. He said, when I was a schoolboy, he said we would occasionally see a turtle on a fence post, and when we did, we knew someone had put him there. He didn't get there by himself, and that he said that is how I see my own life. I'm a turtle on a fence post. Then he goes on, and I love this. He says the Bible is chock full of turtles. One person after another who knew that his or her position of power, authority, or promotion was given by another. And interestingly, in his book, he capitalizes another because he's speaking of God. The position that we have in society is because God placed us there. Listen, I'll be honest, we're all turtles, right? But I look at this and I go, Gideon's a turtle. I mean, he is clearly a turtle on a fence post. He's way beyond his abilities, So where's God placed you? when you think about your position, where has God placed you? He's put you somewhere. And who will you impact? Now, Gideon could have had incredible impact, but there's three things, and I had to limit it. There's a lot of things I saw that I think Gideon completely forgot about, but I want to share three things that I think he forgot about. And in this, I want to be really honest, I've been guilty of every single one of these. And, and I trust and pray the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and meets you in a way that you go, yeah, that's me too. And I want to be renewed because, right, Judges, there's always a path to renewal. Three things that I want you to see. We fail to impact those around us when we forget. First thing I see with Gideon, we, we forget to seek the heart of God. When we forget to seek the heart of God, when we talk about enjoying the heart of God here, we use, we use the phrase, enjoy God fully. We want to enjoy God fully. I want to be in daily fellowship with him. I want, I want my life to revolve around the person of Jesus Christ. I want to exalt him in everything that I am and everything that I do. I want to enjoy him because I see his hand at work in me. Whether it's a good situation or a bad situation, I can still enjoy God because I know he's still in control. Amen? Gideon forgot to seek the heart of God. Chapter 6 is full of dialogue between God and Gideon. If if you read along and follow through the small group study guide, you've read chapter 6, 7, and 8 over these last couple of weeks. And when you read chapter 6, you, you see this constant interaction. God said to Gideon, and God inquired of Gideon. Gideon inquired of God. He said this to God. God said this to him. Chap- chapter 6, verses 11 through 24, Gideon inquires of God. He seeks his peace. He asks God to show him a sign. He asks God, please do not depart from me. He shares a meal with him. Gideon builds an altar in that place, and he says, the Lord is Peace. Why? Because God met him in that place. They had intimate fellowship, conversation. He was seeking the heart of God, and God brought him peace. Verse 34, chapter 6 says, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Your passage, your translation may say, came upon him, right? Because the Spirit of God, in a unique way, pre-New Testament, came upon Gideon and and brought him a sense of incredible peace. Still in Judges chapter 6, verse 36 through 40, we have the, the conversation between Gideon and God over the fleece, right? God, I'm a nervous wreck. I don't want to do this. If this is really you, let me put the, let me put the fleece out and let the dude fall on the fleece. Let the dude not fall on the fleece. And, and so here's this constant interaction. He's seeking the heart of God. He's having communion and fellowship with God. That's going back and forth. He's got now this assurance. He's looking for affirmation. He's looking for the assurance that God is going to be with him That continues into chapter 7. In chapter 7 verses 2, 4, 5, and again in 7, we see these words. It said, the Lord said to Gideon. The Lord said to Gideon. He's listening for the voice of God. I don't know about you. God is always speaking. I'm not always listening. God is always speaking, but I'm often not listening. Or if I do... That's not what I want to hear right now. But the Lord said to Gideon, here's this dialogue, here's this conversation. Again, in chapter 7, down in verse 9, you can see it on the screen. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp for I have given it into your hand. And I love verse 10 because this says he knows Gideon's heart. God knows my heart. He knows your heart. He knows what you're dealing with, even if you don't think he does, because look what he says. But if you are afraid, Dave, you're a turtle on a post. Here's what I want you to do. But if you are afraid, I want you to know that I'm going with you. And so he says to Gideon, I love what he says, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. So on the night of the battle, God knew, right? Because there's this fellowship. He's in relationship with God. They're communicating back and forth, but he's still in fear. He needed, again, the peace of God. So God says, hey, go down there. Just go down and eavesdrop on the guys because I'm going to give you a word. And so what does he do? He goes down. And God was gracious, and he gave him a sign assuring him that, hey, I'm going to win this battle on your behalf, And he does it because he hears these soldiers talking, and about it's about a dream. And and we could we could miss this, we could miss this. The barley cake in that dream. If you if you've read the passage, you know. Basically, this soldier's going, man, I had this dream. This loaf of barley bread come rolling into the camp and destroyed us. This other guy's like, oh my gosh, that must be the god of Gideon. That's the god of Israel. We're all doomed. The significance of the barley cake is simply this. It is the poorest loaf. It, it is the most basic of all substance. So when, when Gideon heard this, what he understood is that this is the least significant item that could be used. But he also understand where, where did God find Gideon? What was he doing? He was threshing wheat. Not on a threshing floor in the open, but up hidden in a cave in a wine press. So naturally, God would speak to him in a language that he fully understood. I'm going to do this with a chunk of barley cake. I'm going to do it with you, Gideon. You're nothing but a farmer. You're a turtle on the fence post. And I'm going to do this with you. We just read it and we go, oh, cool, chunk of bread. Gideon understood so much more about what God was saying to him in this moment. There was a confidence, but, but again, this came because he was seeking the heart of God. 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 15, it says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, look what he did. He worshiped. Underline those words, circle those words. He worshiped. There was no victory won. There was simply a confidence and assurance. I'm a turtle on a fence post, and, and i tell you what I'm gonna do. While I'm up here, I'm gonna worship God because God's got this. I'm this chunk of barley loaf that's just going to roll in. I got nothing to do with this. This is all about God. He is seeking the heart of God. So having conquered most, we know there was about 135,000 Midianites. In this battle, uh, there's about 120,000. That's a 400 to 1 ratio. Thank you, Brad Lane, for doing my math for me, that, that they conquered There was another 15,000 then that began to flee with the princes and the two kings of Midian. That's where chapter 8 then kind of begins to pick up as he begins to chase these guys down. But something happens here. And, And I find it really interesting as I simply read the text. There's a spiral in Gideon's life. Is it arrogance? Is it pride? Is it boldness? Is it courage? Is it confidence? Is it swagger? You can check me on this, but when I read through chapter eight, nowhere in chapter eight do I see any dialogue between God and Gideon. It was all through chapter six and all through chapter seven. And I would love for you to read it. And if I miss something, it might be the first mistake I ever made in my life, except not being up here on time. But it would be the second mistake of the day for me. But I, Because I don't see, if I missed it, I, I certainly could have. But when I read chapter 8, I don't see anywhere where he is saying, God, what would I do? What should I do? I don't see anywhere where it says, and God said to Gideon, pursue the kings. I, I don't see any of that. But what I see is, is Gideon... Gideon becomes a different guy. We were first introduced to him hiding up in the caves and in the strongholds. Now, as he begins to pursue these kings, he, he's going through and he's saying, hey, my guys are really tired and they're really hungry. Give them something. And, and the nation of Israel is like, no, we don't want to do that. We're, we're afraid for ourselves. We're more afraid of the Midianites and all the people that we haven't properly run out of the land than we are to you. So we're not going to be obedient. To which Gideon says, fine, once I capture these guys, I'm going to bring back their head and I'm going to come back through town and I'm going to grab you guys and I'm going to whip you with a bunch of thorns. This guy's brutal. What, what happened to that humble little guy that's threshing wheat in the wine press? And you know what? Chapter 8 tells us he did exactly that. He, he came back through and he did exactly to these guys what he said he would do. Whether it was calling them out on disobedience, whether it was holding them accountable, whether it was like, hey, look, you guys signed a church covenant, and now we're simply holding you to the covenant that you signed as part of the church family. I don't know, but this is a totally different guy than we first met. But I don't see the dialogue. What I do see in chapter 8 is an increased use of personal pronouns. Where Gideon is saying I. Or the, the pronoun he referring to Gideon as he's pursuing these two kings. See, he forgot to seek the heart of God. And I think intimacy with God at that point was broken. Whether it was arrogance, whether it was proud, whether it was courage, I don't know. But something happened. In his life, The second thing that I see that I want to be really careful of because if we're going to impact those around us, uh, we cannot forget, as Gideon did, he forgot to run from sin and he got snared. He forgot to run from sin. The very things that God warned him of, the very things that God warns us of in our life become the things that snare us. Judges chapter 7, we've seen this. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Underline, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. When God was selecting the army for Gideon, he said, look, I know they have 135,000. I know right now you have 32,000, but that's too many. If, if you win the battle with 32,000 over 135,000, you might think it was about you. And he goes, I want you to understand, it's clearly not about you, it's about me. So, according to Old Testament, if you can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, as God was teaching them about warfare and battle, he said, don't take guys into battle that are afraid. Jud- Deuteronomy chapter 20. He said, if anyone's afraid, tell them to go home. What Gideon wasn't expecting is all the guys that went home. All the guys that went home, it's like, hey, I'm afraid, I'm not staying. So now he's down to 10,000. Judges chapter 7, verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Wait, God, I had 35,000, I'm down to 10,000, you're telling me it's still too many, we're going up against 135,000, but what does he say? Take them down to the water and I will test them. This is still about God. Out of the 10,000, 9, drank from their knees or lapped like a dog, which left how many? Someone got a mathematician in the room? 10,000, 9,700, we're down to 300. Now God goes, perfect. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Let's go do this. See, Gideon missed this opportunity to bring reformation and even perhaps revival to the land. Uh, he had torn down his father's idols. Chapter 6, great stuff. Uh, he, but there were other... Households, other people in Israel that were still devoted to Baal and those idols needed to come down, but he didn't do that. He didn't run from the sin and so he got snared. What, what were his idols? What are your idols? For him, I think it could have been pride. It could have been treasure. It could have been all these things that he began to see that were victorious, but I think pride was a big part of it for him. This great victory over Midian uh, could have been this inc- incredible opportunity and occasion to bring glory to God, but, but Gideon used it for his profit. Judges chapter 8, verse 21, look what it says. And Gideon arose and he killed Zeba and Zalmunna. These are the two kings that he's been pursuing. And so once he did that, look what it says, underline this. And he took, he took the crescent ornaments the stuff that that God told them to destroy, he took. Verse 24, chapter 8, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you, give me, give me the earrings from this spoil. Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod. And he put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. The very thing that God said, get rid of it, he didn't do, and it became a snare to him. Listen, you and I constantly struggle with sin, with desires, with pride, with things of the flesh, and God is saying, take it out, wipe it out, run from it, and we don't. And what happens? It becomes a snare to us. It becomes the very thing. God said, I love you enough to tell you to get rid of this, but because you don't, it becomes a snare. And some of those things, listen, are not bad things. Sometimes we think that sin and idols are all evil things like, you know, pornography and addiction and various things. It's not. Sometimes the pride or or the sin or the snare are good things. Family, marriage can become more important to us than our relationship with God. As I talk to couples all the time, I simply tell them this. Look, think of your marriage like a triangle. If if both of you are pursuing God more than you're pursuing each other, it's going to draw you close to one another. Some of us went and saw Jesus Revolution this this week. I encourage you to go see it. Just part of the the Jesus movement started in the late 60s, early 70s. And and I love the conversation between Greg and Kathy Laurie. Hey, look, uh, I, I think you're pretty cool, but if you ever get in the way of me and God, we're done. I'm going to love God more than I love you. That's my wife's constant commitment to me. That's the only reason she's put up with me for 33 plus years, is that she loves Jesus more than me. I promise you, you can ask her, she'll, she'll agree with me. Oh yeah, he's miserable. But you know what? I love God. And that's our commitment to one another. I want to love Jesus more than her, but I could love her and she could become an idol. Same thing with my children. I love my children. Today's my son's birthday. Happy birthday, Christopher. We made it. You're still alive, you know, and um, you know. Um, but our children is is God says, "Hey, our children, our heritage from God, uh, blesses the man whose quiver is full." But listen, parents, you can make your children an idol to come between you and God. That you're more consumed with them and their well-being than you are with God. The best thing you can do for your marriage is love God. The best thing you can do for your children is fall deeply in love with Jesus and live out and demonstrate a faith and a life full of Jesus Christ. So these idols are not all awful things, but but in this particular case, he did not run from sin and all of a sudden he became snared. This was God's promise. This was his instruction. This was his warning. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3, as God is speaking to the nation of Israel, this is what he said, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. God has wanted to eradicate sin in your life and he wants to fill it with himself. And sometimes the only thing that you and I can do is run. Run from sin, run from sin, just run away from it. Just get out of the way. Judges chapter two, as we began this series, verse two, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land and you shall break down their altars. Underline this, but you have not obeyed. You have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Gideon didn't run and he got caught up. Here's the third thing I want you to see this morning. Gideon forgot, we forget to give God the glory And we steal it for ourselves. I think the pride and the downfall for Gideon began back in chapter 7 and verse 20 as they were going into battle. And I want you, this is subtle, but I want you to pick up on it. Verse 20 then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands and the torches in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, listen to this, this is subtle a sword for the Lord and for what? Gideon. 300 guys cracking jars, blowing trumpets, fighting a battle. And somewhere in the midst of that, Gideon hears his name. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher, said five the most dangerous minutes of a pastor's life are right after he preaches. I can't speak for every preacher. Listen, be honest. Sometimes it's great to be encouraged, to be challenged. Hey, preacher, good lesson, good message, thanks. I don't remember what you said, but hey, great job doing it. Um, I'll tell you where God speaks to my heart is when someone says, the Holy Spirit used something you said to speak to my heart and draw me close to him. There's sin in my life that needs to be confessed. I need to get right with God. But I think in this moment, Gideon heard his name. And I think, I think Satan used that moment to just plant a seed of pride that somehow this was about him. And look what I did. I, I came out of, the, wine, I came out of the, the caves. I walked away from the wine press. I stepped into this relationship with God. I had this army. We stripped, we stripped it down, right? Now all of a sudden, all I had was this 300 guys. We kicked some Midian Heine. I'm pretty awesome. A sword for the Lord, a sword for Gideon. Let's go do this thing. And I think at that moment, this little seed of pride got planted. As a matter of fact, after that victory... Now he begins to pursue the kings, 120,000 down, 15,000 running, fleeing with the, with the Midianite kings. And there's an interesting little plot twist that for years I never really saw what I saw last week when I was reading some of this. Verse 18 of Judges chapter 8, then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, these are the two kings that he captured. And he's about to put them to death. And he asks his young son to do it. He's afraid. He's young. Gideon is trying to pass off responsibility that is his. And so he doesn't do it. So these kings are now taunting him and said, why don't you do it yourself? And they also know it's going to be a swifter death. And if some young kid did it, it's probably going to maim them. It's going to be a longer, prolonged death. So th- there's this whole taunting that's taken place. But he said, then he said to Zeb and this is Gideon, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Verse 19, and he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother, and the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Somehow this became about Gideon in this moment. I don't know if in this, maybe I understand better why he was hiding in the caves. Maybe I understand why he was afraid because he saw his brothers die. His father's still living. We saw that in chapter six when he tore down that uh, uh, idol and that altar and his dad kind of stood up for him and others started to rally around. Maybe that's why he was hiding. Maybe that's why he was in fear. We don't know all of what he's seen. We have no idea how long ago this was, but maybe in this moment between the pride in his heart and the bitterness that was deeply tucked away in his heart and life, maybe something happened. Maybe there was a bitterness. Maybe there was an anger. Maybe he was frustrated with God. I don't know. But in this moment, he's like, hey, look, if you hadn't done this, then I would not kill you. He didn't say, look, this is a command. I am doing exactly what God commanded me to do. It was like, hey, I'm I'm the cool guy. I could have mercy upon you. Where's that humble Gideon? Chapter 6 that we were introduced to. Granted, God referred to him, when you look back at chapter 6, verse 12, what did he refer to him as? He said, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, what? Oh, mighty man of valor. God knew something about Gideon that he didn't know about himself. Your translation may say, oh, mighty warrior. And I always laughed at that because I'm thinking, he's up here hiding in the caves. When I really read it and I put it in context, maybe now it starts to make sense. Verse 14, chapter 6, and the Lord said to him, Get this, go in this might of yours. In other words, your translation may also say, Go in the strength that you have. In other words, Gideon, you go be you. You don't have to be anybody else. You don't have to be anything else. You go be you. You go be the man that I created you to be. You go be the woman that I created you to be. You don't have to be anybody else you go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Verse 15, and he said to him, please, Lord, get this, how? How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. What happened to that guy? That humility. So what he did is he stole the glory. He kept it for himself There's two indicators. There's other things here, but I want to give you two that I see. He made an ephod. We've seen that word. We've heard it a couple of times. An ephod was worn by the priest. It was part of the priestly line of Aaron. And and it was a a garment, a two-sided garment, kind of a vest type thing that he would wear. And and it was not part, um, Gideon was not part of that priestly line. So why, of all things, would Gideon now take these things and make an ephod? Did he somehow think he was special? Did he sort of elevate himself and, hey, I've got this great fellowship with God and I'm awesome. He took a role that was not his. There was an arrogance and a pride. There's another thing that I see, and scholars kind of question whether this was a traditional ephod that was just like really just blinged out or whether it was just so heavy and so ornate that it became a demonstration piece like a work of art. Others think it was actually more of an image. We don't know, but what it clearly says is he made himself this ephod. Like he was the priest, like he was the high priest interceding for the people. We don't know. But he just, he worshiped it. Others began to worship it. There was some pride involved in that. The other thing that's really interesting to see, chapter 8, verse 31, uh, we, we discover that, that Gideon had multiple wives and he had 70 sons. But he also had a concubine and had one son and he named him Abimelech. You know what the word Abimelech means? It comes from the root of two Hebrew words. One, father, the second king. My father's the king. He names his son My father is the king. Two things that he stole from God, his priesthood, and and the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords. In this moment, Gideon, it seems so subtle because it's not just all in our face or anything else, but I think it speaks to why Gideon did not have an impact. He stole these things from God. The priestly line, the fact that he is not the king, Pastor Scott's going to unpack more of this next week as we continue into chapter 9. What happens with Abimelech? What happens with these 70 sons? It's horrible. And it's all a direct reflection of what Gideon did not do when God told him to do it. Verse 35 shows us there was no lasting impact as a result of Gideon's work. He worked hard. He did a lot of stuff. And I'll tell you what, I'm being really honest. This feels like me sometimes through the years, 30 plus years in ministry, where I feel like, God, I've worked and I've worked and I've worked and I've worked and I've done all this good stuff and I don't see lasting impact. It shifted the way I think. It's shifted the way I do ministry. How do I have a lasting impact that when I'm gone, even as Nikki reminded us this morning, how do I have a lasting impact for the cause of Jesus Christ from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation? Just keep it going. Gideon failed because he forgot these things. The people didn't care. Verse 35, chapter 8, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam. That is Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. He did all this great stuff. And as soon as he was gone, it's like new flavor of the month. Who's next? They didn't care. There was no lasting spiritual impact. And it sounds much to me like the modern day church. We do all these busy things and we want all these activities and we get caught up in the business of ministry. We get caught up in the activities. We build our idols, even though they may seem like really good things. We, we make them idols between us and the Lord and we, we don't have this lasting impact on our culture. We leave no significant spiritual impact anywhere around us because we forget. So this morning, we don't want to forget. I want us to remember. I'm going to invite the team up this morning because in just a moment, we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to remember who's the king. The team's going to begin to sing in just a moment. And as they do, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just remain seated. And I want you to spend a moment with the Lord. I need to do business with the Lord this morning. And maybe you do too. Maybe you've forgotten some of these things. Maybe you're stealing, you know, maybe you're not running from sin. Maybe you're stealing glory that belongs to the Lord. You're keeping it for yourself. Maybe you're not seeking the heart of God. You've forgotten some of these things this morning. I want us to remember as a church, I want us to to get right with the Lord. I want to draw close to him. And when we talk about the Lord's Supper, Paul gives us a picture in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And one of the things that he says is he says, when you come to the table together, this is what what we participate as the Lord's Supper communion is a small portion of what was the Feast of the Passover. And we saw with Jesus the night before he was betrayed, and as he met and he gathered, they enjoyed the Passover together. This is a small part of that. There were four cups in that Passover. We enjoy one cup. It's called the cup of redemption. Specifically, Paul tells us it was after supper he took this cup. That was the fourth cup, that was the cup of redemption. But he says, before you do this, before you gather at the table, he says, I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 11, to examine yourself. That if there's any unconfessed sin, if there's things that you're harboring that you need to get right with someone, you need to make that right before you come to the Lord's Supper. And remember, make sure that you're coming in a manner that is worthy not worthy of you, not because you're a great person, but because of the greatness of God, because of the holiness of God, who's redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We come in a manner that's worthy because Jesus is worthy. Amen. We come worthy because Jesus alone is worthy, but there may be unconfessed sin in your life. So I don't want us to forget. I want us to remember there's always a path to renewal. That's Judges. There's always a path to renewal. This morning, there's a path to renewal for you. And maybe you need to be renewed in your walk in your relationship with Christ. Not to forget these things, but to remember. Instead, we remember that we are sinners. We're separated from God. We remember that there's this chasm, this huge separation between a holy God and a sinful man. We remember that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that he made a way for us to to go over, to be sinful people, to be even honored, to come into a relationship with God out of his kindness and mercy. He even invites us to do that. We need to remember that God made that way through the cross of Jesus. We need to remember that he paid that price through his broken body and his shed blood. That's what we're going to remember this morning. We're going to remember that God has called us to himself. We're going to remember that he saved us through the the blood of Jesus. We're going to remember that he empowered us through the Holy Spirit. We're going to remember that he invites us to participate with him on mission to impact those in our blast zone. We need to remember that we're turtles on a post. And the only time or the only way that we are anywhere we are is because Jesus put us there. So would you bow your heads in an attitude of prayer this morning, Father, as we come to your table. Father, we are not worthy because we are sinful people, but the blood of Jesus Christ has made a way for us. God, we rejoice. We praise you and thank you for your goodness. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at infosfchurch.com. At for additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.